morning, church. Let's all stand as I open us up in a word of prayer. Father, open up our hearts these next 30 or so minutes as you begin to teach us, feed us, and show us your word. Be with me, Lord, for I'm a complete mess right now. If you know the week that I've had, so may my words be clear, and more than anything, may the word of God and Jesus' spirit be heard and felt in this next hour or so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh, when my brother was about seven years old, this is like mid-80s, our family went on a camping trip to Yosemite National Park, and we ended up hiking up uh, a hike called the Vernal Falls. And it's a good two to five hour hike, depending on how far you want to go up. Well, our family decided to go all the way up. And uh, so we made it all the way to the top. But back then, surprisingly, when you made it all the way to the top, there was no railing to let you know how far was, or how close was too close to the ledge. And uh, my brother, being the, the curious guy that he is, saw a little, like a lizard, running in and out of, of the cracks of the rocks up there. And he began to chase it. And so as he began to chase it, my dad noticed that he was running and chasing towards the ledge where the water actually falls. And so as my brother is running after this lizard, my dad is screaming at him, yelling at him, trying to do anything for him to stop. And then my brother loses footing. And then he slips. The feeling of horror of a child being swept away. Now, I may not be a parent, but I have had that vantage point to see many families during my years of ministry to see or be in fear that the children are being swept away from under their fingers. And you guys know how hard it is to be a parent, how the challenge it is to raise children, to raise children in the church. And many of you may already know the feeling to see them come of age, to go off to college, to find work, and to leave behind the very thing that you hope that they would embrace. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dan Allender, a well-known counselor, says that 17% of evangelical children from evangelical homes attend evangelical churches. And what he is saying is 83% are being swept away. I have a few friends in Japan, and some of them teach seminary there. Some of them are teaching English. And well, they have, they have shared with me that for the past 30 to 40 years, that they have seen people spend millions and millions of dollars sending missionaries to Japan. And that conversion, and little by little, people are slowly being converted to Christ. Not a big wave of them, but maybe just hundreds. And here's the thing. They say, what's been so tough? The thing is that even though they are people who do receive Christ, the challenge is that they're, they're kids don't adopt the faith. And this does not only apply to the congregation or your regular church attender, but this also applies to their pastors, to the elders. 
And what they're basically saying is, we are heartbroken, and we have to do something. And they're right. We have to do something. And what has God told us to do? Well, in Psalm 145.4, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. Parents and grandparents, the church, all of us must lock arms to pass the baton of faith from one generation to the next. In 1643, there was a particular college founded in the States, and that college was Harvard. And this was their mission statement. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That's the mission statement for Harvard. Don't you love that? To lay Christ in the bottom. Church, if we are going to keep children from being swept away, and we ha- then we have to give them weight. We have to give them heft. We have to lay Christ into their souls. And that's our challenge. And that's what God has called us to do. So here's a question, though. How in the world do we lay Christ in our children? Well, we must teach them the truth. We must saturate them with the truth. We live in a day and age where people say there is no truth. And yet when we read scripture, we see that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. So we must give children the truth. And that is to say then we must give them Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we give them Jesus? The Bible says, parents, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But what does that entail? Today we looked at Deuteronomy 6, and what's the picture it's trying to tell us? It says, these words that I am commanding you today, you shall teach them to your sons. Talk of it when you sit in the house, when you lie down, when you rise up, all day long, all the time, in every way. The picture that is given to us is that God wants children raised in an environment that is saturated with biblical truth, where they are taught to evaluate everything in light of God's word. God says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In other words, to have the mind of Christ. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. The picture of the Bible is to think as Christ thought. That we would have Christ's mind. Don't be conformed to this world, Romans 12 says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All our mind captured by the wonder of God's word. Teach your children to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Give them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God, is the calling of parents, is the calling of the church. To have the mind so informed and influenced by the truth of God, that God has revealed that we begin to see 
and think as God does. That our minds are steeped in Scripture as He is in hot water until God permeates our minds, our knowledge, and our understanding. That's why the Bible says the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And we all know that imagery, right? I mean, it's simple. The foundation is the most important thing for the house. You can have two identical-looking houses. They can receive the same external pressure. Which house will stand? The one with the solid foundation. What's the solid foundation? It's the Word of God. Build your house. Build your children. And saturate them with the truth. Now I want you to listen very clearly to what I'm about to say because here is something I believe very, very few Christians have pondered or understood. And clearly our actions in the world would indicate that that's the case. Biblical Christianity is not just instruction on how to be reconciled to God. Biblical Christianity is the self-revelation of God. In other words, Christianity is not just how to have your sins forgiven and then go to heaven. It's not about how to get your foot in the door and then that's it. Biblical Christianity is the intellectual holding of the truth and then living in light of it. It's coming to understand that in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The call to parents... And the call to the church is to disciple the children in truth. Not just with prayer times or prayers before meals or when dropping them off to youth group or dropping them off to Sunday school, but massaging the gospel into all things intellectual, all things relational, all things athletic, artistic, and physical. Here's the challenge, though. How can parents do that when they don't know how to think that way for themselves? That's the challenge. How can parents disciple their children to do what they don't know how to do? We got a big problem, don't we? So what do we do? We put all our hope into the volunteers who teach our children, who teach youth ministry, who are part of youth ministry. We put all our hope into the pastors of the church, whether that's lead, associate, youth, family, the list can go on. And then sooner or later, our children grow. But what happens? When they start asking us questions, we find ourselves biblically illiterate. This is why we need to seek the truth ourselves as well to lay Christ in the bottom of our lives as well. And we cannot do this alone, and we are not meant to do this alone. Thus I hope TCC can be a church where we strongly desire and are convicted to disciple our children, the next generation, in solid truth, and at the same time, pursue it ourselves. That if we were to ever be asked why Christ should allow us into heaven, that our answers in confidence would be because the righteousness of Christ. Because of what he's done for me on the cross, even though I did not deserve it at all. The sad thing is, though, so many Christians, when asked that question, they don't say anything about what Christ has done. Instead, they say something along the lines, well, because of 
what I did for God on earth and how I tried my very best to obey and live out the Bible. They don't say anything about the righteous Christ and they make getting into heaven all about them and what they did. That's not the gospel truth. The gospel truth is that our sins are imputed to Christ, but his righteousness is imputed to us. And so many of us miss that part. And this affects our lives. This affects how we see the world, how we see others, and how we understand the gospel and how we raise our children. Let me give you an illustration. You walk into a bank, and you walk into a bank because you have to clear all these bounce checks that you have, right? These checks that you've written to all these different organizations, companies, whatever. Not only that, you've got to also pay for these bounce check fees, right? And the pr- bank president comes over and sees like, wow, you are seriously in debt. But I tell you what, we will waive all of that. Let me ask you something, and you could answer this in your head silently. Is that grace? Is that grace that the bank president would waive all that debt? You know, when, I, when I've asked children this in, in, in the past churches that I've served at, you know, they strongly say, yes, absolutely, that is grace. And not only children, but even including adults. Yes, that is grace. And then I say, grace is unmerited favor. Is that unmerited favor? Have you done anything to merit the favor of the bank president? Now, here's the thing. We know that debt just doesn't go away, right? Now, the bank is bearing all the expenses of the debt. So, is that unmerited favor? Have you done anything to merit the favor of the bank? That's not grace. Why? Because what's your financial condition when you walk out of the bank? It's exactly as when you walked into the bank. You have nothing. In fact, you just continue to owe. Right? So at that point, you had better get to work and earn your merit. You had better get to work and pay it off. But we know that's not the gospel. You know that the gospel truth is that the bank president not only clears your debt, but he invites you to the back and he shows you the records of the bank. And he shows you that your name has now been put on the account of the bank. And everything in the bank now belongs to you. None of which you earned none of which you merited. That is what Christianity is. It's not our religious belief system. It's not our religious values. It's not a how-to recipe. It's not seeing what you have to do to live a better life, but it's about seeing what has already been done for you so that you can. We must lay the foundation in the future generation's hearts and ours. That who you are precedes what you do how you live, what you say. The truth is realizing who you are in Christ precedes what you do for Christ, always. In seminary, in the theological world, the lingo is the indicative always precedes the imperative. This is one of the greatest lessons that I've ever learned in my preaching professors. In other words, our union with Christ, the indicative, always comes before and motivates my obedience to Christ, the imperative. The grace that identifies me as God's child is not based on my actions. He characterizes me. He loves me based on my relationship with him, not what I have done. Now, why in the world am I sharing all this? 
Because when it comes to our Christian faith, when it comes to raising the next generation to love Jesus, it's so, so easy to violate this rule without even knowing it. It's easy to violate this rule even in our homes when we parent. We live in a world that preaches the exact opposite message, right? What you do defines who you are, right? What you don't do defines who you are. What you listen to, how you dress, how you talk, how you are to your teacher, how you, what the people that you hang out with, all of this determines how you will be viewed in the eyes of others. And this church creeps into our homes. For example, it's easy for a parent to give the, them, to give the impression to their child, okay? Give this kind of impression to their child. Tice, okay? Or Emily, Anna, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Tice, because of what you did, you are a very bad boy. In other words, you are characterizing them by their actions. Instead, it might be better to simply say, because this is what the gospel says, Tice, don't do that. Because you are my child. So what you're saying is, be what you are, our beloved, and not do, so you will be loved. Tell your children the gospel truth. Every week during school season or when, or when TCC is, is, is active, TCC's youth ministry is active, I see the youth come in and out and walk through the door of our church. And now whether it's on a Tuesday, whether it's on a Friday, a Sunday, whatever day, the hope and mission is to have them walk out those same doors feeling that they matter. And one of the greatest thrills of being a pastor of a church, right, whether you're a youth pastor, associate lead, one of the greatest thrills is that we get to tell the people, we get to tell all of you congregation that you matter to us. And more importantly, you matter to Christ. Our current youth students may not know it. Our children's ministry may not. Children, our children's ministry may not know it. Your own child may not know it. But it's the greatest news that they have ever heard and ever will hear. That they matter. And that they matter to Christ. And we have the opportunity to tell them that. And to watch the Holy Spirit press into their heart and into their lives and to see them changed and transformed. It's a great calling. And it's a calling that requires all of us to link arms to do it. Now, I, I must confess, a lot of times when I read the Bible, it's a chore. Yes, Twilliger, your youth pastor at times thinks reading the Bible is a chore. In fact, it can be boring. <laughs> but when I hear the gospel, when I hear a beautiful sermon, and my heart is destroyed, rebuilt, and renewed. Now, this is not to say don't read your Bible. But this is perhaps to help you see that when Jesus is laid at the bottom of your heart, are you not captivated by God's amazing grace? Are you not moved because all you see is Jesus, and that's all you need to see? and the righteousness of what he's done? Are you not compelled and now even maybe interested to read the Bible, to get to know this Christ that did everything for you even though you did not deserve it? Yes, I know. The gospel is hard to understand. It can be a challenge to get. 
In fact, there is resistance to the gospel. Okay? I get it. And you know know what's funny? And maybe it's not funny. It's it's ironic. One of the greatest challenges for a pastor. Okay? One of the greatest challenges for a pastor. Now, before I go on, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Ken. I'm not going to speak on behalf of Pastor Nor, but I will speak on behalf of myself and so many other pastors I know, okay? We, sorry. So many other pastors around the world is that the challenge is that we are the most resistant to the gospel. Us pastors We are the most resistant to the gospel. The very act of being a pastor is a hindrance to getting the gospel. We, in a sense, are the most unlikely people in the whole congregation to get the gospel. The very act of preaching and doing ministry stands between us and being deeply impacted by the gospel. So it's a challenge for us. There is a sense of resistance. Even as I mentioned in this room, I imagine there are people saying, Oh no, here we go again. Gospel, 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 gospel. Well, I tell you this. If you don't get the gospel, if I don't get the gospel, how in the world do you think our young hearts would get the gospel? If we don't get the gospel, we do serious harm to everyone around us. When it comes to ministry and being a pastor, nothing encourages me more. Nothing drives me more than to see, hear, see and hear stories of how the congregation or congregant gets the gospel better than I do. Oh, nothing gets my juices going. I love that. There was a young lady at a church that I previously served at. And she was so excited about Jesus. She had been converted. She had joy. And she could not believe Jesus had loved her. And, and you just wanted to talk to her because her joy was so infectious. But there was a problem. She wanted to become a member of the church. And the problem was that she was living with her boyfriend. And they had a kid together. Kid out of wedlock. And so the way it went down at the church was, if you want to profess Christ, you cannot be living together outside of marriage. And you're not going to be allowed to join if you're in that state. And that was a problem. She had been converted. She loved Jesus. She loved Jesus so much it was just infectious. Now here was the problem. She loved Jesus more than I did. And I was one of the pastors. She had more passion for Jesus than one of the pastors of the church. And she wasn't even allowed to be a member of the church. So I sat down with the elders of our church and I said, Look man, this girl, she loves Jesus more than I do. And maybe there's a good chance that she loves Jesus more than you do. We're we're officers, we're elders, we're pastors of the church, and she cannot be a member of the church. Something is deeply wrong with us. Because we've got people in the church who gossip like it's nobody's business. They're allowed to be members of the church here. We got people in this church who spend money on themselves in the most grossest display of self-absorption, and yet they're allowed to be members of the church here. We got people in our church who are filled with criticism and self-righteousness, and yet they're allowed to be members of the church here. And they're not even asked once to stop all that they're doing. And this began a great journey for the church, for our sins, for our institutional self-righteousness. And this girl saved our church at the end. She was so gracious when I had to say to her, you know what? 
you've raised the question. And that your love for Jesus has provoked something in us that has to change. And you're going to have to give us time to deal with it. Because you're way ahead of us in faith. She gave us time. And her boyfriend married. And her and her boyfriend married. And her husband, from what I hear, is now a deacon of the church. And you know what? She does ministry there. She leads ministry to teenage mothers. She leads ministry to unmarried teenage girls. And they have about 30 teenage girls coming to those meetings. Let me tell you another story. There was a father who came up to me. And he shared me his story. It actually was one of my seminary professors. And he, in one of his books, he wrote about it. And so let me just read it, okay? I was at home one day and this porn ad came up all, all of a sudden. And people have said the porn industry is quite aggressive. But my goodness, I didn't think, I didn't do anything or click anything. And it's all coming up on the screen. My friend who I'm telling this to says, no, stupid. That means someone in your house has been playing around on sites they shouldn't be playing on. That's why this stuff is coming up on your computer. He quickly realized it was his son. And when, his son came, when my son came home, I had to talk with him and tell him, I knew he had been places on the computer that he shouldn't have been to. My son is proud and strong. And his face just cracked and began to cry. And as a parent, you're all ready to say all this stuff. You got all, you've prepped your speech. You've prepped your, 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 your punchlines. But now all of a sudden, you got a kid in front of you crying, so filled with shame. I remember sitting there, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. How do I give the gospel? What is the gospel? Suddenly, I realized, and I looked at my son, who was filled with shame, and I said, I know exactly how you feel. When I was in college, I was the Christian in our dorm. Everyone knew I was a Christian. And one day I had the keys to all rooms in our hall. And my friend told me about a stash of Playboy Playboy magazines, and I just drove into that. We broke in, and we just drove into that. And suddenly, when I knew I shouldn't have been there, the kid who lived in this dorm walked in and caught us. And I remember feeling the total shame, utter shame. And I began to cry with myself. That's what it feels like to feel like you're the biggest sinner in the house. And that you can't correct people in your family or in your church without that realization. You can't correct them. You're still a, well, you can correct them. You're still a parent. You're still a pastor. You're still a leader. But it changes the whole tone of your correction, doesn't it? You realize that whatever you're trying to correct in someone else exists in your own life, doesn't it? Let me give you one fresh example before I go on and close. These past few weeks have been somewhat stressful for me. I recently filed a restraining order on on a tenant that lives below me. In late April when I moved in, um, and, and since day one, the tenant has been extremely a pain in the butt. And not only that, I've realized that for the past six years, he's caused a lot of trouble to the other tenants and the people who've lived in and out of my unit. And so I filed a restraining order, and this past Friday, we had to go to court. And long story short, at the end, the judge ruled our case with a mutual restraining order. Oh my gosh, I was so disappointed how it ended. This disappointment turned into frustration. 
which turned into me just complaining because justice wasn't served. In fact, rather, justice was turned against me. I even started thinking about dropping the restraining order so that, if, so that he couldn't call a cheap shot on me and I'd be at risk of getting arrested and being, the police being called on, on me, right? Because if the restraining order was dropped, then it's all fair game again. You want to duke it out? Let's duke it out. All of a sudden, I'm having this dialogue in my head as I'm driving because I need to relieve my stress. And all my ghettoness, all my old street sense starts coming out. I am ticked. All, all the while while I'm, living, while I'm listening to Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9. And this is, let me give you a glimpse of how God works in me. And while I catch my breath and I calm down, a Star Wars quote, a Star Wars quote pops into my head. I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> the Spirit intercedes. Son, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What does the gospel say? The greatest war has been won. The greatest judge of all is for you, not against you. Your issue is you felt that justice wasn't served. And it irks you because you know you did nothing wrong. But let me remind you, justice has already been served, but not in the way you see it. But you know what? It goes even deeper. And all of a sudden, I realize that God is getting ghetto on me, and he's putting me on blast. And he says, this goes even deeper. You feel... That a lot of things that have happened to you since you were a little kid up until recent years have been unjust. And here is a rare opportunity for you to unleash all of your unfinished baggage on a person that you know very little about, even though his actions to you and others in the past have been disrespectful. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And as much as I want to resist this truth, the truth of the gospel takes over and surrounds me with this utmost amazing peace. The gospel's truth, and I realize, shows so powerfully through the most weakest and stupidest self-reasonings and self-experiences for, for me. At least it does in my life. I take another deep breath. I say thank you. And then I turn on one of my favorite hip-hop tracks, It Was a Good Day by Ice Cube. And I drive with utmost peace. It's easy to be scolding. But if you're the one who needs the gospel the most, then we discipline, teach, and speak into the lives of young hearts with more patience. When it comes to youth ministry, children's ministry, we can have this idea that we got to be knowledgeable, that our lives have to be all put together, that all the time we got to be all-knowing, when that is so far from the truth. What you have to realize is to see yourself as the biggest sinner in the room and yet saved by amazing grace of Christ all the more. This is the perspective the youth are being raised and taught in right now at TCC. The youth are seeing themselves no better or worse than their peers no matter what. To see themselves as the biggest sinner in the room and at the same time preach the message that they matter to God. We are to lay grace of Christ on the bottom of each of our students' lives. And when's the best time to teach these children the truth, to lay Jesus on the bottom? 
The best time to teach them is when they are children, in their preteens and well into their teenage years, when, they are, when their souls are young. And this takes authentic community. We haven't got a chance of raising children and laying Christ in the bottom to follow Christ all their lives passionately if we do not do it together. We need each other. We cannot do this in isolation. We have to raise our children in community. We are responsible for each other. To pass the truth to the next generation, church, takes community. Gabriel is the son of Joe and Cheryl Horn. He's your child too. Vicky, the daughter of Ronan and Dana Cruz. Canoli, the son of Martha and Paul Luyeye. They are your children too. Reina, Anna, Faith, Corinne, the daughters of Jason and Janelle McFeeder, Hilmar and Trisha Lemke, Brad and Leanne Liskey. They are your children too. David, the son of Brian and Angeline Dowell. He is your child too. Isaiah, the son of Jeff and Angela Thomas. He is your child too. Tobit, the son of Martha and Paul Luyeye. He is your son too. Abby, Hannah, Natalia, Grace, the daughters of Jason and Steph McKinnon, Robert and Melda Hageman. They are your daughters too. Maya, the daughter of Manoj and Jenny Matthews, Elise, the daughter of John and Heather Nesbitt, these are your girls too. Hannah, Jada, Tiffany, Jessica, Haley, the daughters of Roger and Christy Roberts, Kevin and Shannon Rosette, Kevin and Melanisa, these are your girls too. And there are so many girls, so many other students, so many boys that I can name. We are all responsible for each other. It is not every family individual for themselves. They are your children too. It takes a whole community to be able to do this. It takes a whole community. And if you are sitting down here today and saying, I agree with everything you are saying, but I'm in my 60s, I'm in my 70s, this has nothing to do with me. I've already raised my kids. I agree with you, but, but that's what kids need. I wish someone preached to me 50, this, 50 years ago. doesn't do them any good now. No, 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 buddy, no. It takes the whole church. This sermon is every bit for you as it is with a family with young children because we can't do anything without each other. We cannot anchor our children the truth without each other. And if anybody strongly feels this way, then I'm going to take a hunch it is the seniors. You would think that it would be the parents who are in their 30s and 40s would be so appreciative of a message like this. But I guarantee you, because in the past, it's proven over and over and over again. At the end, it is the seniors who come and shake my hand and say thank you. Because you know what? There's something that happens the older you get that says nothing resonates with me more. That before I leave this earth, I want to have finished what I came here to do. I want to say I, I pass the faith to the next generation. And every senior here knows that if it hasn't been passed to the next generation, that whether they have won World War I or II or not, they haven't won the Great War. The Great War is not defeating the Nazis. The Great War is not defeating communism. It's not defeating Islam. The Great War is getting the faith to our children. Let me confess. 
But part of the reason I share this with you is because here at TCC, yeah, we are in great need of dedicated and consistent volunteers for youth. But I would rather have a group of volunteers to help, not because you are asked or you feel obligated, but out of a response to seeing the beauty of the gospel work in your life and wanting to show how the beauty of the gospel can work in the teen's life. Knowing who you are in Christ always precedes what you do for him. Are you hoping that your children would be raised in a home that shows Christ? Are you hoping you will be part of a church that is saturated with the gospel truth and fellowship and Bible studies and service inside and outside the church? Are you hoping that your children will cling on to Christ after they go off to college when they meet their future spouses, when they begin to build a family? Then, buddy, it will take a whole community. My brother landed three feet from the ledge. Three feet from being swept away along with the waters all the way down to the bottom. I had never seen my dad hold my brother so tight for so long. I had never seen my dad show so much affection as he held my, held my brother's hand for the rest of the day and well into the evening. He certainly didn't do that with me after all the near-death incidents. I better stop now, as you can tell. The force is strong. It will take an authentic community. It will take all of us speaking into the lives of the next generation and to be a part of their life. May the force be with us. Will you bow your heads with me? Will you bow your heads and why don't you pray for your children? Why don't you bring them before the Lord by name? Grown children, grandchildren. If you don't have children, pray for your nieces, your nephews, for other children, for your friends' children, for your students. Bring them before the Lord. Say their names before the Lord. Pray for them. Think of their struggles. If they're married, pray for their marriages. Pray for their security. Pray for their fears. Pray for their flaws. Pray that Jesus' would love would be real to them. Pray that the gospel, that they would get it. Pray that they would experience what it's like, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pray that they would be set free from the idea that Christianity is just religion. It's just duty, guilt, and obligation. Pray that they would be set free to experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that would make following Jesus an absolute delight to them. The joy of their life. Father, we're not much as parents. We're not much as people. But you are. Rescue our children. We want Christ in their souls and in their minds. It is the prayer of our hearts. We want to give all of ourselves to you because you gave all of yourself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.